The Bins Towards Justice podcast series is a partnership between Duquesne University and the August Wilson African American Cultural Center. The series is made possible by a grant from the Pittsburgh Foundation and hosted by Bruce Ledowitz, Professor of Law at the Duquesne University School of Law. Tracy McCants-Lewis is a person who has made numerous contributions to Pittsburgh and the region. She has been a tenured professor of law at Duquesne University School of Law. She is currently Deputy General Counsel to the Pittsburgh Penguins hockey team, and she serves on the board of directors of the August Wilson African American Cultural Center, which is a partner in this podcast series. Tracy McCants-Lewis is also a leader in the movement for social justice in recognition of which the Urban League awarded her the Ron Brown Community Leadership Award in 2017. Part of that leadership is her current work as an adjunct faculty member teaching in the Duquesne Law School Civil Rights Clinic, where, among other things, students provide advice and represent individuals pursuing expungements and pardons. For Tracy McCants-Lewis, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. is not just a hero out of history but a constant and contemporary source of inspiration. Okay, so um, let me uh, start with this um, a question. You, you had a TED Talk a few years ago in Pittsburgh, and you ended this talk was about forgiveness, and you ended it with a quote from Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. Why Dr. King? I think Dr. King's message, um, one of love and acceptance, was one that was relevant to the topic um, of forgiveness, especially with individuals that have criminal records, uh, especially old criminal records that are trying to come back to society um, and better their opportunities and chances for employment, housing, and sometimes even education. Um, We've all done things in our past that we want forgiveness for or need forgiveness for um, from other individuals, but I think there's also Uh, that time when we have to forgive ourselves for things that we've done. And I just thought wrapping up that that TED Talk with um, a quote from Dr. King um, just really summed it up. Now, I mean, I take it it follows that Dr. King is a kind of universal figure in in American culture. Yes. So you can never go wrong quoting Dr. King. I'd like to think so. (laughs) Uh, Now, you you had a whole talk about forgiveness. Yes. And... um, it was a wonderful talk, and I recommend it to our listeners, but um, not, not really any mention of religion per se. Now, um, you know, religions generally have a lot to say about forgiveness. Was that a conscious choice? Um, it was a conscious choice uh, because I was really talking about the legal system and so the separation of church and state. Um, I didn't bring religion into the, uh, into the TED Talk. Um, however, oftentimes a lot of our clients that we are working with have actually, um, especially with, the, with, with regard to a pardon in Pennsylvania, the pardon board is looking for that person seeking forgiveness, a person saying that I am rehabilitated. And oftentimes in that rehabilitation, the individual has turned a corner. They now experience seek, conversion. They experience conversion. They seek a higher source, a higher power that is now guiding their life, um, taking them away from what it was that 
put them in touch with the criminal justice system. Um, a lot of our clients that have uh, issues with regard to alcohol or drugs are going through, um, you know, AA or NA. And through that process, we see a lot of individuals who, um, again, are seeking a higher power to, to keep them on track. Now, um, the TED audience, on the other hand, pretty secular. I would say it was on a Sunday, so um, <laughs> when, I, in church. when I gave my TED Talk, they, they weren't in church, um, but I, I can't say that. Um, I think it was a mixed crowd, but the religious composition of the crowd was. I do remember that there were a couple of individuals that came up to me after uh, the TED Talk, because I was in the afternoon, um, and I think based upon the title, one gentleman said, oh, I thought, here we go, something religious, and I've uh, just, I was in church all morning. So um, I think the title alone, some people thought that it was going to be a talk about religion. Mm -hmm. And maybe 20 years ago, it would have had to have been. Perhaps, yes. Um, now, in terms of um, the podcast topic, you know, the bends toward justice, the famous quotation from Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. that the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. What, what does this mean to you? All in all, everything that's happening in society around us um, we should should look and hope that eventually everything will shift towards achieving justice and equality for all um, oh well, i hear this very <laughs> careful couching here in, yes. of the language um yeah because we've we've had guests of course who, who don't agree mm -hmm. with dr king mm -hmm. who think that it's uh, pious nonsense i won't say pious nonsense I do. Um, I think we're we're still we're still trying to to achieve it. I don't know if I'll ever see um, what we would call equality or or justice, especially in some facets and areas um, of society or even in my life. Mm -hmm. um, now, Dr. King, you know, uh, famously said in in Washington in the Washington speech that he had seen the promised land, but. Um, I, I take it he didn't mean that he was going to see the result in his lifetime either. Right. Um, but he saw glimmerings. Do you see glimmerings of, um, of justice around? I think historically and even in my life, you can see things that um, one can say are glimmerings or pieces of justice. Um, we could look maybe even at Reconstruction. You could say that that was justice at that point in time and then it was demolished it's it was gone now looking forward to 2019 you know we see some um people of color that are in the senate of the united states is that justice for what happened during slavery um possibly but again it's a piece so um i think we have it in fits and flurries with regard to what is justice. And do you think we, we learn, now Dr. King didn't really address this, he, he sort of treated justice as, um, as a pre-existing condition that we discover, but um, do you think we learn more about justice over time so that our, our very standards of understanding of justice change? I think we do learn more about justice um, as, as time develops because um, what one may see as an injustice can come about by something that's happening in society today. Um, so you may see something and say that's an injustice, 
that should not be happening. And so to correct that, to have justice, might be something that was not an injustice maybe 10 years ago. Not understood to be an injustice. Correct. Right, yes. Uh, there's a lot of that, and obviously the role of women is a good example yes. of that. The, the very constitution that we honor um, had nothing much to say about the rights of women, of course, and, and now that's changed by amendment and by cultural norms. Of course, it's also true about people of color and mm -hmm. Native people as well. Yes. So um, it's, it's, it's not clear um, that the standards of justice are uh, stagnant. And maybe we are discovering something real. I think that Dr. King thought that it was, there was something real there, not something that we just make up. Right. Um, so you, you grew up in the period after the sort of heyday of the civil rights movement. Uh, what, what, what echoes of that, of that movement and uh, of Dr. King did you experience growing up? Um, in my family, uh, we had a, a strong commitment to the, uh, the Urban League. Um, my mother's family is from Alabama. My father's family is from Georgia. Um, so they were the perfect examples of uh, the, the Great Migration to the North. Um, and seeing and hearing, you know, some of the um, systemic racism that uh, my family faced, and even seeing some of it myself growing up, um, I had that bend towards myself seeking justice. Um, my parents told me, and I kind of remember, I think I was in around third grade, and um, we were learning about female historical figures, and I came home and I said to my parents, you know, I have the double whammy. They were like, what are you talking about? <laughs> and I said, well, I'm black and I'm a woman. You know, am I gonna always face oppression and not being able to do things and, you know, being told that I can't? And I remember my parents telling me, especially my father, you can do anything that you want to do. You can be anything that you want to be. You know, and, and that was in third grade that I had the realization that there are gonna be some things that I'm going to have to confront, um, some things that I'm gonna have to face because of my race and because of my gender, that intersection. Um, so I, I saw certain things that I believe were a carryover from uh, the civil rights movement and uh, the continued fight for equality. Um, as a woman and as an African-American woman. Now, do you, th do you think your father turned out to be right? I mean, if, if your father had been talking to you 50 years ago, he might have said the same thing, but it, it would not have been objectively true. How do you feel about that, that observation now? Um, I think he was pretty spot on. Um, so this came to be true in your own lifetime? In my own lifetime, and I think you know, there, there's much more that uh, I can achieve that there may be for me to achieve, um, but I think for myself and even uh, people that I grew up with, people that have known me, I couldn't imagine, I never imagined that um, this young African-American girl from Monroeville, Pennsylvania would be Deputy General Counsel for the Penguins in 2019. And they're very lucky to have you. Thank you they're, very much. <laughs> We, uh, I have to tell the listeners that, uh, that you left a, uh, your position as a, as a tenured law professor here at Duquesne and we were all very sorry to see you go and we have hopes that one day you may return. 
and we shall see what happens. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I thought I could get a commitment right here on the radio, you know. No, 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 no. Um, now, when, when Dr. King said this, uh, you know, the context was the early stages, actually, of the movement, um, but he repeated this teaching many, many times, of course. Uh, what, what impact do you think it, has on, it, it had at that time on, on people hope, hopeful of uh, progress, that when Dr. King sort of spoke on behalf of the universe, saying, the universe is on your side? I think that it gave um, a sense of optimism and hope um, for individuals who had um, really declared him as the leader of uh, a certain segment of the civil rights movement. And um, it, it was hope. And I think with the uh, you know, religious background, the Christian background and Christian faith that Dr. King came from, you know, faith is the evidence of things hoped for and not seen. So I think in, in looking at, um, at this phrase that he was repeating and putting out there, um, you know, it fell, it fell in line with, um, with Christian teaching. You may not be able to see it because this, this arc is long. God is working his purpose out. He's working his purpose out. And so you may not be able to see it because the arc is long, but eventually it's going to get towards justice. It's bending towards justice. And of course, the community to which he was primarily speaking, especially at the beginning, was the African-American community raised in the church. Correct. So um, uh, obviously it had a great um, impact. But on the other hand, he was also throwing down a gauntlet because he was saying that the people that he was in conflict with were on the wrong side of the universe. Mm -hmm. and that, now that's a, uh, that would be considered maybe m more inflammatory today than it was at the time. I agree. Um, and, and, and perhaps it was, to, you know, it, and to say to the crowd that he was speaking to, you know, don't worry, keep the faith, they'll be converted too. Yes, and that's a very important point. Uh, Dr. King never wanted to defeat the people that he was in conflict with. He always wanted to convert them. Mm -hmm. And that, I, I take it you, you're, you're suggesting that this is not quite the tone of the culture today. I, I haven't heard a lot of people on the two sides of the aisle talk about converting their opponents. No. Killing or you know, hating, but not, not converting. Exactly. A lot of bad language, um, but not conversion, not acceptance, not um, willingness. And of course, if justice is real, then the, my opponent is better off converted, mm -hmm. because now my opponent will be in the truth, too. I mean, it's sort of for his own good. Right. We will all be on the same side, working towards that goal of justice together. Which is, which is real. Mm -hmm. Okay. So... Um, do you think that this teaching by Dr. King um, is accepted today in, in the culture? And then, then I'm going to ask you, if, if, if not, what's changed? I don't know if it's necessarily accepted today. I think, um, I think there are certain individuals, maybe within my, my generation and some younger, um, who are tired. They want to see the change right now. Um, they and not saying that they don't have faith, um, but again, how long do we have to wait? How long is that arc? Where is the end of that arc? Yes, and of course, Dr. King raised that question too in many of his speeches, how long? How, how long? long, exactly. And so I think uh, today what we're seeing are some individuals saying, you know, when do we want it? When do we want justice? When do we want it? We want it now. 
we want it now. And I think we've seen evidence of that in the city of Pittsburgh um, with some of the things that have happened uh, recently with regard to police community relations. Um, most of the individuals that have been at the forefront uh, of seeking uh, justice have been youth. They've been uh, students in junior high, high school, some college students. And I don't want to say I don't feel that they have that patience to wait, but they, they, want, they want justice now. They're looking for it. Um, and I think they've seen so much injustice. Uh, with the advent of social media, you know, we could put my phone on right now. You can watch YouTube videos. You can see videos on Instagram, on Twitter, on Facebook of injustices across the world. And I think that constant barrage of seeing these things um, has done something different to our our society right now. Oh, you think in some sense it's been negative, that it, it, it hasn't promoted a sense of a desire for change, but rather can be discouraging. I think it can be discouraging to constantly see um, injustices happening across the world, but also happening in your community. Um, and being able to see it sometimes even real time. I think uh, some of the trauma that goes along with that, an individual um, might say, there is no arc leaning towards justice. I'm not seeing justice. I'm not experiencing justice. Um, I've seen what has happened to individuals that look like me, whether it be um, they're my same gender, same sexual orientation, same age as me, same color, same race, same national origin, same religion. And I'm seeing this injustice happen to them and then unfortunately, um, for some individuals, they see that. And then when there is an opportunity for justice, they haven't seen it. So I think there's some discouragement. Now, it's interesting because Dr. King, who believed that the universe would bend, was bending toward justice or does bend toward justice, but he also had this argument about patience. You know, he was told that he should be more patient. Mm -hmm. And um, that was the famous uh, letter from jail in which um, he said, no, don't, don't talk to the victim about being more patient. So it's possible to believe that the universe is on your side and still be impatient, but I guess it's a different kind of impatience if you think it's all up to you and your efforts. Right. And the universe is indifferent or neutral. Correct. Uh, right. Now, I, I know that President Obama changed the quote uh, when he used it. He used it all the time, too. And he said the, the, the arc of the moral universe bends toward justice if you bend it, uh, which I don't think is what Dr. King meant. Right. I, I, I think um, President Obama said that, and then um, Attorney General Holder was also, I think he kind of also um, modified the quote and said if you pull <laughs> if you're pulling justice towards you. And I think that's what um, we're seeing today with, with some, some youth that have seen injustices in their community. I think they're trying to fight and pull that justice towards them. They're, they're trying to bend that arc or pull the justice towards them and say, we're going to get justice by any means necessary. Right. And I know Dr. King would not have said that. So I think, you know, you're pointing out that um, a, social movements can be different depending on their view of history. That, it, that you, you'd get a different, perhaps, kind of uh, struggle when you believe that the arc of the moral universe is on your side 
uh, you could have this, all the same issues. You could uh, obviously there'll be discouragement, but there might be something different at heart if you believe that the arc of the moral universe bends toward justice and that you are in fact representative of that hope mm-hmm. in the universe. But even uh, even you know the the view of of history, I think, is important. I honestly think that also the view of of your current events and what's happening and what you're seeing. So if we look at the 1950s and 1960s and some of the injustices that that were happening and occurring, let's say uh, lynchings that were happening all over the South, you might have somebody in Butler, Georgia, where my family was from, that would know about lynchings in their community. They may not have the knowledge that 70 lynchings happened in Alabama at the same time They'll eventually find out and know about it, perhaps. Um, but I think even at those times, you know, you did have um, African American newspapers and such that would relay that information to the African American community. Um, but today, I think, again, you're seeing so much. Right, everyone would know. Flooded right. with information, and everyone would know. And, and I, I, I can't help but to think that. That influx and current stream, um, constant information of seeing the injustices and actually really experiencing them, and that trauma um, is having an effect on how one views justice. And its future. And its future. And its future. Yes. Now, what happens, do you think, if a, if a culture becomes convinced, maybe because of these technological reasons, a culture becomes convinced that there is no higher power, there's no trend in history. There's not going to be in necessarily be improvement. It might be two steps forward, two steps back. Um, what what happens to a culture that loses the faith of in uh, history and, and in the future? I think that's a culture that's in trouble. Um, I think that's a culture that's at the verge of. Um, you know, possible implosion, that, you know, fighting, a civil war, um, if we're constantly, if, it's, if it becomes like a, uh, you know, a, a, a pressure cooker. Mm-hmm. And, and, and we're just constantly at odds and someone's going to win, whoever pushes harder is going to win, and, um, and there's no judgment of truth. It's just power. It's just power. My way is the right way. Right. And uh, this, this, uh, and in fact, the, the, the reason for this podcast series is to open up that very question for this culture. Because mm-hmm. I, I think there, some of what you've just described is certainly true of some of our culture. Mm-hmm. Now, as you say, though, when you gave your TED Talk, um, we may exaggerate that. You know, if, if all we do is watch the news, we, we may overestimate the amount of division there is in American life. So let me ask you, you're a... You're a very, uh, you know, uh, well-known public figure, and you are an African-American woman. Um, but and and hockey fans are not exactly mixed. It's a it's a pretty white sport. Mm-hmm. So um, have have you experienced acceptance by fans, other teams, or other organizations, and so forth? So interesting. Uh, you bring this up. Um, about two weeks ago, I brought in Kim Davis, who was with the National Hockey League. Uh, she and her team came to Pittsburgh. Um, I met her probably two weeks after I started with the Penguins uh, at a National Hockey League conference uh, for the teams. She is the executive vice president of social impact. 
And what that department at the NHL looks, like, looks at is uh, making the sport of hockey more accessible to everyone. Mm-hmm. Um, expanding the fan base, as well as giving um, especially youth an opportunity to play hockey. Youth that typically would not have access to hockey. Right, it's a pretty expensive sport. It's an expensive sport, and if we look here in the city of Pittsburgh, um, we have we don't have a sheet of ice within the city limits. There's ice up in Cranberry. We have the uh, UPMC Lemieux practice facility. Um, there are some other facilities in South Hills not accessible by public transportation. So the Pittsburgh Penguins brought in the NHL to show them what we're doing here in the city to try and make hockey more accessible. Um, and one thing that we're looking to do is convert the old armory uh, into a hockey facility. And it sits uh, between Shadyside and East Liberty. Right, yeah. Um, so trying to make that a hockey facility that we open to the public, maybe working with Pittsburgh Public Schools to um, allow uh, those schools to have a hockey facility that would be open year-round. Um, we also have some programming with um, one of our nonprofits that works through the Pittsburgh Penguins Foundation called Hockey Sticks Together, where they provide <laughs> hockey equipment um, to youth uh, that sign up, and the program runs from the Hill District to Oakland down to Hazelwood, and uh, we're full already. So. I think I found acceptance, you know, walking through the stadium. There are more uh, fans of color than one would expect um, to see. Uh, they are there. I'm also working on uh, bringing a group called the Black Girl Hockey Club to Pittsburgh. Um, it's a group of uh, black women um, that have either played hockey, play hockey, uh, just love hockey, or they are mothers of hockey players. And uh, they're from all over the country. Last year, they had an official meetup in um, in Washington D.C. with the Capitals. The woman that started the organization is a Pittsburgh Penguins fan, so I reached out to her and I said, "If you're a Pens fan, you have to come to Pittsburgh, and we'll host you." Um, so we're hoping that they're going to come down um, mid-season for a, a day, and I've invited every black girl in Pittsburgh that I know. Um, <laughs> and and through and the podcast, come. more exactly. Well, that that's fabulous, and, and in fact. We're seeing the arc of the moral universe bending even as, even as we speak. Yes. That's great. Um, well, let me ask you now about um, the role of Dr. King generally in America today. So it is often said that Americans revere Dr. King, but don't listen to him. Do even his admirers know anything about his actual thinking, do you think? I think there could be more focus on his teachings um, by, by everyone. Um, I think he's just at this point to some individuals just a you know a, a public figure an icon. that they know about an icon right. a hero a hero um, but I don't which of course he was and he was and is but I don't think there's the the in-depth um, knowledge of um, of his teachings of what he stood for of, of what he did and of course this is uh, not only true of his sort of intellectual approach or his, his thinking as such, but obviously, uh, as I've heard you talk about in the past, his, his views on economics are not really appreciated at all. Right. Uh, it's no accident how he, he met his, uh, his end, his assassination, supporting a strike by um, municipal garbage workers in Memphis. Right. Um, now, how would you describe Dr. King? Would you think of him as an African-American 
figure, leader, uh, a Christian leader, an American leader, all of these, none of these? How would you describe Dr. King? I'd say African-American, so that encompasses you know, race and his nationality. So African-American, um, Christian figure. Definitely, definitely Christian. Yes, definitely Christian. And um, an American figure? I think by saying African-American, I encompass ah, both. Absolutely. Um, and a world figure. I mean, the, when you consider the um, influences on him, Gandhi in particular, mm -hmm. you know, he really um, spans many different cultures as well. Exactly. And, I, and you know, being a Nobel Peace Prize winner, I think that also speaks to the fact that he had that international recognition. Yeah, absolutely. Um, now, since he, as you said, he's a, he's, a, he's a Christian thinker, what does that mean for a, a culture like ours, which is increasingly secular in terms of his influence? And is that part of the problem with this particular teaching about the arc of the moral universe? I don't think that it necessarily is, is a problem. Um, I think even though our society is becoming more secular, um, there are still teachings, I think, from the Christian uh, religion um, and other religions that people can can pick up on and utilize in life and perhaps not even knowing that they're doing such oh that okay. they're influenced right. by it right this is the the, the god-shaped emptiness of uh, secular culture mm -hmm. you know we sort of uh, we we unconsciously uh, understand what god is and how god works even if we don't have any experience with church correct and of course dr king wasn't talking about god in this quote and there's a reason for that. I mean, you know, he talked about God often enough, so it, it, he was giving a teaching that anyone could hear and, and listen to. And apply to and, themselves. And apply, and apply. Now, in terms of August Wilson, mm -hmm. you know, you are a board member of the August Wilson uh, African American Cultural Center. Um, I, I saw the PBS uh, American Masters episode about uh, August Wilson, the, the ground on which I stand. I don't know if you've ever seen it, but in it, Todd Kreidler, who was a playwright who worked with August Wilson um, toward the end of his life, he was quoted as saying this, that uh, August Wilson expected justice from America and he held America's feet to the fire. And it, it reminded me of Dr. King's quote. Mm -hmm. um. I would agree with that. Looking at uh, the plays, the series of plays that August Wilson wrote, um, they were all based in the Hill District, um, which is right behind us, um, and the plays were so real um, because he was talking about things that happened on Wiley Avenue and Bedford Avenue, and, and he was using um, experiences that he saw happening in the Hill District through his plays. He was telling that story. So he was putting um, what was happening in the Hill District right in those plays, right in the face of the, the people coming to see uh, these performances. So one may um, have known, okay, urban renewal is happening in the Hill District, but to see it in the play, to hear it through the characters, to see how it affected the characters, um, how it affected their community, how it affected their psyche, um, really put it into, you know, in the forefront. And so um, 
I think through his series of plays, looking for that, that justice that he was seeking, he was putting it right there. It was clean and right in your face. There was no, um, no hiding the ball. It was right there. This is what's happening in the African-American community. And he utilized the Hill District as a representation of, I think, the greater community, greater African-American community. And oftentimes his plays show the injustices that oh, African-Americans yeah. yeah. uh, faced. And so one watching that play had to come to, they, one would have a Jesus moment watching it. Yes. In fact, even watching, even watching the PBS special was, uh, was a very impactful experience. Mm -hmm. It was a, an amazing show. Um, now, only one of, I, I, I can only think of one of the plays, the Two, two Trains Running in 1969, mm -hmm. which, which indirectly dealt with the aftermath of the riots in, in Pittsburgh. Mm -hmm. um, that's the only direct influence, I would think, of, uh, of Dr. King's life on, on the plays. Uh, do you know of any other influenced uh, or references to Dr. King in August Wilson's work or thought? Not really directly. I think that one, that play, Two Trains Running, had the most direct uh, references to Dr. King. But I think in a lot of, uh, a lot of his plays, you saw the, the injustices and some of the inequality um, that African Americans face. So there may not have been reference uh, to Dr. King, um, but in a lot of the plays you saw some of the hardships that African Americans face because of um, you know, segregation or um, low employment, things such as that. Things happening on the job, you know, workplace discrimination, you would see some of those things in his plays. Um, maybe without the, the, the reference to Dr. King, but um, it was there, present. Now, um, do you, Todd Kreidler would, would say that um, August Wilson expected, you know, in the long run, and of course he was taken from us so young, but um, that he expected the arc of the moral universe to bend toward justice. I mean, that would just be another way of saying he expected justice to triumph. Do, do you have that same sense from August Wilson's work? You know, like you said, I, I, he was taken uh, from us too early because that's a question that I would like to have had a conversation <laughs> with him yes. about um, because I'm, I'm really not sure you know a lot of his plays um, again put out and really showcased and highlighted um, some of the things that in the African-American community that uh, were the result of um, some of the injustices in our society um, and maybe by showing some of those things and referencing them, he was saying if he had time to write those later plays, maybe those later plays would have moved and shown this is the justice that we are seeking and this is the justice that we can have. And, and the, last, um, the last play uh, in the cycle, Radio Golf, that, that did already in the 90s uh, start with a, a very different starting point, you know, the, the, the middle class, right. some arrival, right. uh, you know, not all, obviously, but definitely a change mm -hmm. from the earlier plays. Yes. Now, the, um, another thing that the um, PBS special said after the um, funeral, people came from all over the country to be part of the funeral, and some of the people said they were stunned 
by how August Wilson was royalty in Pittsburgh. Now that, that has to be in, in, in part uh, uh, sort of the, the legacy that the August Wilson African American Culture Center uh, works with in, in Pittsburgh. I mean, August Wilson is quite a force in Pittsburgh. Yes. Um, you know, in, in the center, we are, uh, we're really blessed to work with uh, his widow, um, Costanza Romero. Um, you know, she's given us um, the liberty um, and, and the rights to utilize his name um, on the center. Uh, I had an opportunity to spend some time with her in April. Um, when we celebrated his birthday and also had the August Wilson Center Gala. And, um, you know, just sitting and listening to her um, talk about his life and um, how proud he would be um, of the center being here, um, it made the work that we do all, more, all that more important. We have opportunity to make sure uh, the younger generations know who August Wilson was, um, to use, utilize the center as an opportunity for individuals to come and see all forms of art, um, as well as going out into the community to give students and other communities opportunities to, to see art, to learn about art. We have um, some programming where we will go into the schools um, and take some of the national artists and international artists that are coming to the August Wilson Center, they will oftentimes come to the center a day early or hours early uh, before a performance so that they can go into the community or go to a school and uh, do some performances for children at the school who may not have opportunity or time to come to the center based upon when a, a production is. Um, you know, so looking at that, we are trying to live up to our um, duty and responsibility to ensure that we are doing everything to honor his name and give good programming here in the city um, at the center, but also give good, good programming in the community around the arts. Well, I, I can only say how grateful I am that the August Wilson Center is a partner in the uh, podcast series. It's, it changes everything good. Uh, to have a partner like that. Is there anything you'd like to add? I mean, I've covered all the bases I had in mind. No, uh, I, again, I, again I'm, I'm, I'm happy for the partnership. I'm glad that this worked out um, because I think, you know, we need to look at all genres uh, of art and education um, and giving opportunity for African-Americans to learn more about Dr. Martin Luther King. I think it's a great pairing with the August Wilson Center based upon what our mission is. And um, so I, too, am, am very um, grateful that we were able to partner with you for this uh, great programming. Thank you. Thank you. Today's Bends Towards Justice podcast was written by Bruce Letowitz. The executive producer is Jennifer Rignani, and technical lead is Jason Melito. For more information about our series, email us at letowitz at duq.edu. To learn more about the August Wilson African American Cultural Center, visit aacc-awc.org.